You have tuned in to Soul Searching, the Church of the Nativity podcast, where we explore faith through scripture, reason, and tradition. So I've been thinking a lot about silence, awareness, and listening. Now, those are not values of our current culture. I don't know if they ever were or ever have been, but certainly now, when so much of our creative energy is poured into getting folks to stare at their phones more, when there are so many distractions that we are compelled to ask, to whose advantage is it that we are distracted, and what are they not wanting us to witness? For sure, in this environment, silence, paying attention, and listening are not our primary values. I happen to know someone who's actually really good at silence, awareness, and listening. In the Diocese of East Tennessee, of which the Church of Nativity is a part, we are blessed to be shepherded by Right Reverend Brian Cole, the fifth bishop of East Tennessee. Bishop Cole is one of the most grounded, centered, secure religious professionals I have ever met. He is the walking definition of a non-anxious presence. It's not surprising, consequently, that Bishop Cole is a disciple of Jesus that is deeply immersed and formed by prayer, by contemplation, by cultivating the so-called interior life. A key influence on his formation is Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk and writer of the mid-20th century. So in this episode of Soul Searching, we are sharing a conversation I got to have with Bishop Cole about Thomas Merton. It was such a good conversation and so extensive that this episode is the first half, and next week we'll drop the second half of our conversation. It is my hope that this interview not only gives you some insight into Thomas Merton, but also piques your interest in finding some space. Space for silence, awareness, and listening. So good morning, Bishop Cole. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, we're talking about Thomas Merton, who I know you are a big fan of, and I just wondered if you would give us an introduction to Thomas Merton in case any of our listeners have never heard of him. Sure. Uh, Jason, first of all, it's good to be with you on this podcast. Um, Thomas Merton uh, was probably one of the most significant writers around the spiritual life in the 20th century. He was a monk at Gethsemane um, Abbey Monastery uh, outside of Bargetown. He was there from 1941 to 1968 and uh, was first really known because of an autobiography he wrote basically when he was about 26, 27 years old. That was published a couple of years later, became an international bestseller called The Seven Story Mountain. Uh, but we still read him today and we read him in many ways more than he was read even at that time. I've heard him called the patron saint of the spiritual, but not religious. And in many ways, I think he writes to issues of contemplation, issues of the spirit, but particularly as he grew older, issues around uh, engagement in the world. Um, so even though he was a monk living in the woods, um, a lot of his writings on social concern, civil rights, 
War and Peace, Nuclear Disarmament, um, people still read that stuff as well. And um, and I, I always say that, this, that my shorthand answer is Thomas Merton made me an Episcopalian. I grew up in the Baptist tradition. It was my encounter with Merton that really fundamentally changed my life. Would you t be willing to tell us more about that story of how a yeah. Catholic monk uh, turns you toward becoming an Episcopalian? Sure. So I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition and in a small town in Southeast Missouri with a pretty limited understanding of the religious landscape in America. Uh, in the town where I grew up in, there were basically um, Southern Baptist, Independent Church of Christ, Methodist. And um, so again, not, and then we all sort of acted, you know, we were all basically um, to a certain degree practicing some kind of fundamentalism. Uh, so pretty, pretty thin understanding or thin view of, of the larger Christian world. Went to seminary right out of college uh, and went to seminary at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, today it has a very different reputation, but when I was there, it was considered to be a liberal Southern Baptist school a very intellectually op open and curious place. And they had a lot of relations with other Protestant bodies, with Roman Catholic bodies, um, even some interfaith conversations there, which was, I love, but was also brand new for me. You know, I'm a kid from the country and the idea of a liberal Southern Baptist, you know, was like sort of jumbo shrimp, you know, like it just didn't make sense. And um, had a professor who took us to Gethsemane Monastery uh, and uh, this was a professor who had known Merton. Um, as a young professor in the 60s, he would take seminarians to visit with Merton. Merton died in 1968 of a freak accident. He was in Bangkok, Thailand, and tripped over an electrical wire getting out of a bath and was electrocuted. And um, so it's 19, it's like 1990 when I'm there. So we go to the monastery and just the encounter with the monks and simple prayer, um, praying the hours, just the starkness of it, I just fell in love with. And, um, you know, in the Southern Baptist tradition, um, preaching is foremost and preaching a long time is foremost and uh, a certain amount of being uncomfortable with silence uh, was, was true for me as a kid, as far as religious tradition. Uh, you know, even when the preacher was praying the prayer at the end of the um, service, you know, that you, you always had the background organ playing in the back. You know, you always had some kind of sound. So I think the idea of just utter silence was was scary. And it's not, you know, scary for lots of people, not just that little Baptist church. So Merton for me was just like, just a godsend of like, wow, there's, there's this other way of being Christian, which I find compelling. However, I'm, I realized I'm not compelled to become a monk, right? So I realized, okay, the experience I had at Gethsemane was profound for me. So what do, like, how do I take that and put that in the world? And um, was a very earnest early 20s seminarian. So I went to see a lot of my professors, Baptist professors, who were obviously much older than me, many of them near retirement. And to a person, after hearing my story and how, having me explain my dilemma, they said to me, if I was your age, I'd become an Episcopalian. And after about the third one said that, I thought I should maybe pay attention to that. And so I visited the, the cathedral in Louisville 
at the time, uh, Geraldine Wolf, who went on to be the Bishop of Rhode Island, at the time, Jerry Wolf was the dean uh, at the cathedral. And like a lot of young people, uh, I went to an Episcopal cathedral, went to Episcopal church, and nobody spoke to me. <laughs> you know, I was a visitor, and I was a young person. And we say we want young people, we want visitors, we want newcomers. And they they put on the full court Episcopal welcome, you know, that so many churches do. Like, yeah, we just didn't talk to you at all. Um, I loved the liturgy, and I understood what my professors were saying, you know, that same kind of anchor of prayer and that ordinary rhythm of prayer and that Benedictine rhythm of prayer, you know, I began to realize they were saying that kind of prayer is in this church, in the Episcopal church. And if you're already dealing with the potential fundamentalism of Southern Baptist life, um, at the time, I think the U.S. Catholic tradition was sort of was reacting against Vatican II so if you have sort of a, a creeping fundamentalism in Baptist life, a kind of creeping fundamentalism in Roman Catholic life, you know, why trade one straitjacket for another? Um, and so the Episcopal Church was this sort of deep prayerful place and a deep open place. And that, that fit me as, a, as someone in my 20s. And, um, but, you know, I, I know this is just audio, not um, video, but, you know, one fourth of my books here in the office are Merton books. And I'm kind of, um, it's probably something wrong with me. You know, if I go into a bookstore, especially a used bookstore and there's a Merton book, I just buy it because I feel sorry for it and take it home and give it away to people. Um, because he has just so shaped my life and shaped my way of thinking. And um, I'm now aware too, um, he was a complicated character. Um, and so I, I do not think Thomas Merton is the answer for everybody. And um, so I had to be careful about my enthusiasm about him. But for me, he was, he was a, a, a door to a new life. I know for a lot of Episcopalians who come out of the evangelical tradition, C.S. Lewis is often that character, right? Uh, and it, it, for whatever reason, as a young adult, you know, C.S. Lewis never came onto my radar. So I don't have that same kind of Lewis made me an Anglican that a lot of people have. Uh, so for me, it was Merton. And um, along with the just kind of constantly reading him, you know, have some interest in sort of academic interest in him. There's this, a series uh, publisher called Fons Vitae in Louisville, and they've done a series of books on Merton and Buddhism, Merton and the Tao. And they did one on Merton and the Protestant tradition. And I have a small essay in there, which is basically kind of, again, the story of how Merton made me an Episcopalian or made me a, a contemplative. So, uh, you know, you say he's, he's still read uh, extensively and his thinking uh, was, was as pertinent now as it was then. And also silence was the thing he sought and the thing he expressed. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of silence in Merton's uh, con construct of contemplation and contemplation in general. So one thing about Merton is he's a really, he's a complicated character with lots of contradictions. Um, you know, so he sought the monastic life, sought solitude, but actually this isn't a contradiction. He sought solitude, but he also loved people. And um, he wrote in um, New Seeds of Contemplation, he has a little essay called Learning to Be Alone. 
and he has this great line about that we do not go into the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them. We do not leave them in order to have nothing more to do with them, but to find out the way to do with them the most good. Um, what I love about that is I think at times we do meet some people who are solitaries, who maybe are kind of hermits, who also would say to, say to you, they fundamentally don't like people. <laughs> and uh, Merton, Merton had correspondence with folks all over the world. Um, and even though he's a Trappist monk, he would have visitors come to the monastery from all over the world. I mean, he was a sought after person and he, he loved the interaction with people. At the same time, he, he did find it exhausting. So, you know, he, he would, he was, um, there's some contradictions there, but I think what the, the role of silence, part of what Merton said that I think, and this is why he, the whole idea of he's the patron saint of the spiritual, but not religious in many ways, he gave away the goods um, in that he said to folks, you don't have to become a monk in order to be a contemplative. And he maybe would even say, if you if you become a monk in order to become a contemplative, you might be making a mistake. Uh, you, but Because his, his view was we were all called to be contemplatives and we all had the potential gift of contemplation because for him, an interior silence, an interior life um, is, is the goal for humanity. And, and others maybe have more recently written it in more eloquent ways, in particular a guy named Martin Laird has written some great books on contemplation and silence and centering prayer. But, you know, Merton was the first to say, because what happened is, you know, he writes this autobiography, Seven Story Mountain, about his conversion to Catholicism, his coming to the monastery, people read it all over the world. So then they think, oh, I want to become a monk like Thomas Merton. And many of them did go to Gethsemane uh, and re realized Merton had sort of, um, you know, that was not his intent. His intent was not to make everyone a monk. But at some point, I think he, he, his intent was to say, we all are deserving of an interior life and solitude and silence because you think about it's even gotten worse. You know, Merton would have critiqued mass media in a time that we would consider it pretty quaint, <laughs> but he would talk about just the noise, you know, the noise of celebrity, the noise of the talking heads, the noise of politicians, just, there was just noise. And um, so a part of the seeking of silence was to realize, um, and others have said it before Merton, you know, that sort of silence is sort of God's native language, right? And, um, and so that's what he was about. And that's why, you know, I, a few years ago, I was in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, in a parish where I served, and we were having sort of a theology on tap. We were downtown at a pizza place and having a conversation about Thomas Merton. And at the end of the evening, our server, a young man in his 20s, had overheard our conversation all evening and asked if he could show me something. I said, sure. And he basically sort of took off his shirt, and uh, on his back, he had a rather lengthy Thomas Merton quote. And I thought, First of all, that tattoo looks really expensive because there's a lot of words. Um, but like, here's a kid who's all in. And again, he, he, he was not saying to me, you know, Father Cole, you know, what time are the services at Good Shepherd on Main Street? He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm on a path and Thomas Merton is an important thinker and writer for me. And I'm not really connected and looking for connection to the life of the church but I'm looking for the life of the spirit. And for him, he found it in Merton, um, which to this day, 
is a memory that I will keep for a long time, that encounter with that young man. And yeah, that, that is um, still occurring with Merton because I know both of us have recently read Pappy Land mm-hmm. by Wright Thompson. Um, and when I opened this book about bourbon and saw a map of central Kentucky, that made sense. And then I also saw on the map was Gethsemane, the Abbey of Gethsemane. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then when he, and he, Wright Thompson talks in that book about being very uncomfortable with American Christianity and he's, he's from Mississippi, so I'm, you know, I'm ex- assuming a lot of his exposure has been um, white evangelicalism. And that, so he's expressing an uncomfortableness with that. But yet Merton's spirituality is, a, a, is an access point for him to God without maybe some of the baggage of American Christianity. Um, so that's still occurring with Merton. And I also recommend to folks the book Pappy Land. It's mm-hmm. very well written. Um, very good book. So there's a quote that, at least for years, I have attributed to Merton. And I know it at least sounds like Merton. Maybe you can <laughs> confirm if it is actually Merton or not. Um, but I think it will connect well to how Merton speaks to the world while also retreating from the world at the same time. Um, and that is that you cannot be a contemplative without becoming an activist, and you can't be an activist for very long if you aren't also a contemplative. That now, sounds like Merton. It also sounds like Daniel Berrigan. Um, I'm a Kentucky guy. So, so um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I mean, I think Merton would definitely would definitely support the idea of what you've said. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was also a time Daniel Berrigan, the the Jesuit priest who died a few years ago, talked about you know, a time is coming, if it's not already here, that when being, when, when the time is coming, if it's not already here, that contemplation will be considered a subversive activity. Uh, so that's kind of a way that he tied contemplation and activism together. Yeah, because you know, what happened was, um, and this is what, again, I think why Merton is so important to read is, is just how many conversions he had, right? So he has the conversion to Catholicism, quite dramatic in his early 20s, he then has, you know, falls in love with the kind of romantic view of Catholicism and monasticism, gets to the monastery, thinks it's the best place in the world um, until he doesn't. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it feels like, okay, I've, I've picked the, you know, because he, he really had a sense was he had picked the wrong monastic tradition that instead of being a Trappist, uh, I think it's the Carthusians, I think, I think that's the tradition where you live as hermits you live in community. Let me back up. A group of men, a group, a group of monks live, you live in sort of scattered cells, so like separate homes, and you come together occasionally for prayer together or occasionally for meals together. But you're really kind of all kind of going to your room where with Trappist, it's all about the community in a way that I think Merton at some point realized he was being lost. And so, you know, he kept he kept badgering them to the point that they allowed him to live as a hermit um, at Gethsemane. And he was that first time that ever happened uh, there. So I think at some point he realized he had this mismatch on on him, the kind of monk he was. But a part of his conversion, too, was realizing that he loved the world. Um, He was in Louisville. I think he'd gone to the dentist and had what was called this epiphany, which he writes about in a couple of different places, 
where he realized he's standing and seeing all these people and he realizes he loves them. Where in a more immature take on monasticism, you know, monk good, world bad, monastery good, you know, city bad. And, and he broke through that simplistic thinking and realized my call, you know, as a monk, you're called to be one with God, but that oneness with God is then a call to express God's love, right? So you don't walk around hating God's creation or hating God's creatures. And from that too, he realized he, he had been boxed in with the seven story mountain autobiography. You know, people still wanted to hear more from the young romantic, you know, monk who hates the world. And he thought, I don't hate the world. I, and I want to, I want to hear what young people have to say. And I want to, I want to speak on the civil rights movement. And I want to speak on uh, nuclear disarmament. I want to speak on um, the cold war. And all of a sudden, uh, a lot of people didn't like that. You know, you know, first of all, you're this monk and, and what do you know about the world? And um, so he became, he became a kind of activist um, who then, you know, had interest in what young people were, were doing in the 60s, uh, you know, was reading widely. So was reading, you know, everything from like Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice and reading James Baldwin and, and writing all kinds of folks back and forth and, um, uh, and you know, writing and learning about interfaith dialogue and, and interest, you know, part of his trip to Southeast Asia and dying in Thailand um, he talked about that being a pilgrimage and that after having been at the monastery for 27 years, he was allowed this enormous trip of several weeks going into months. Um, and a part of that trip for him was a pilgrimage to, to going home. He talked about going to the Asia as a way of going home that he believed and other people have expressed this, that as a Christian monk, in many ways, he felt he had more encounter, more in common with the Buddhist monk than he would with a Roman Catholic person, you know, so that, 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 that sort of that monastic life had more commonality so that while he's not a Buddhist, or he, you know, he, he has interest in Buddhism. It, it's, it's the monastic vocation that somehow is universal for him where, you know, the Roman Catholic lay, layman in Lexington, Kentucky, maybe he and Merton are, are miles apart from each other, you know, theologically, emotionally, spiritually, politically, um, even though they're both Roman, Roman Catholics. And so, yeah, the idea of, of contemplation and activism for Merton definitely uh, would at some point describe him. The first time I had ever heard of Thomas Merton um, was uh, in Asheville, North Carolina. I was at the ecumenical gathering of Christian college students in New Year's of 98, 99, I think they called it Celebrate 2 or something like that. Um, and it was, there was a book table and uh, his book on contemplative prayer was there. And I'd never seen those two words together. Mm -hmm. That was literally, oh, this looks interesting. I'll buy this book. That was it. Huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've read that book. I've loaned it to other people. And I've told them, this is not a book you read fast. This is, right. <laughs> this is, this is, it, it, I mean, it's maybe a hundred pages. I mean, it's a very thin volume, but, uh, it, it's, it took me years because it's, it's yeah. one of those things where you read a paragraph and you need to think about it for a couple of months before you move on. So that was my first interaction with Merton. Um, and with contemplatism, contemplative prayer in general, or in a broader sense, um, from him and other teachers to simplify it 
way too much, I guess, would be to say that it is the subtle art of being quiet and paying attention at the same time, which is becoming more and more, I uh, agree with Berrigan, uh, a subversive act because so much of the noise that comes at us is, I believe, intended to distract us um, and captivate our attention so, but we're not, so that we're not really paying attention to what's behind that or um, what is intended or the focus or the purposes of forces moving in the world. And so uh, the, the notion of silence, of being quiet from internally and externally creates a space where we can pay attention. And when you start paying attention and start really seeing what's going on in the world, it, it triggers that compulsion to do something about it. I think that so many of us have, and that's that connection between contemplativeness, contemplation and activism, I think kind of emerges from that. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think Merton would say activism without um, contemplation becomes a kind of violence. Hmm. Um, and, and, and just that you're just, you know, you're just, re, you know, so there's injustice in the world, but you're, but then you're just kind of reacting in a way that just, that just, you know, ultimately maybe is not the real healing gesture as opposed to um, the contemplative that has both the interior life that has some real silence in their world. As Merton even said in that little essay about learning to be alone, that you then have enough distance from it to see it clearly or, or to, to, to move towards seeing it more clearly. And, um, and as he grew older, you know, to realize a part of seeing more clearly involves helping others to see and, and others helping you to see. Uh, supposedly he had kind of a verbal tick. I've heard that uh, when he would speak to the novices and teach the novices, uh, he would kind of always end a sentence by saying, do you see, do you see? Um, and uh, so that, you know, he, he both was trying to, to perfect his vision and he was helping, he was wanting others to, to, to have a more clear vision of what they were seeing. And so I think activism without contemplation can just be, um, a lot of reaction that doesn't help. Uh, and I think the activist uh, who, who has a life of prayer, who has an interior life, who has a life of silence, who has a contemplative life, is both built for the long haul of, of the injustice or the work, but also uh, probably has a more clear way to go about, so how is it we address that injustice? And so that, you know, kind of a, both a political and a religious sort of, you know, um, plan if you will to like so so how do we address this because obviously in addressing it um we want healing for the situation and healing for ourselves and even some of the work of of racism and anti-racism um you know at some point and it's been said by many many people you know along with people along with people of color being victims of racism uh racists are also victims of racism you know that that at some point Racism deforms uh, the racist, uh, just like it deforms those that they see as somehow less than made in the image of God. Yes, and that triggers a thought for me that if we think of silence and uh, paying attention being the first two legs of the stool of contemplation, the third leg would be listening, which 
if you're going to be an activist, and this is becoming more and more part of the activist conversation, is that you have to begin with listening. Um, and especially for you and I, as two middle-aged white guys, being told, the culture has not told us, listen first, then respond. It's The culture has taught us, fix the problem as you see it and <laughs> immediately. Um, and we're having, I'm having to learn um, over the last 20 years and still have a lot to go uh, uh, to wait, stop. Yes, recognize there's a problem, but then listen even more. Uh, to, to really to really hear what the problem is. And that's an act of contemplation. Really listening to another person is a pathway to listening for the voice of God. There's a, there's a great little book. I think it's called Listening uh, by, a, by a British deacon that uh, is a wonderful book. Anne Long. Anne Long is the name. And um, she talks about, you know, the ministry of listening is listening to God listening to others, listening to self. Uh, and that, that we, too often, even those of us who are clergy types don't listen enough to God, uh, let alone listen to others. And uh, a part of that interior silence and physical solitude is also, am I willing to, li am I, am I willing to listen to just my interior life? Because so often that makes us the most uncomfortable, right? And, um, and then, yeah, you, you take older white guys and you put clerical collars on us, um, and, and too often either we're set up or we want to be set up to say, well, surely you almost have the answer. So, you know, just keep talking. And a thing I've done, I think it started a couple of years ago. And, and again, some of this had to do with Merton, you know, that I'm, I'm reading Thomas Merton all the time. And then I'm aware, okay, when Merton was reading, he was reading lots of other people besides just himself, <laughs> you know, or again, just one other one other person and so began to realize you know that that how either how i get my news uh the people i read as far as political commentators um religious uh influence that my my uh, list was too thin and uh too white and too male uh and too much like me and uh so began to wonder like who are the folks that i need to be reading that i haven't read one of the first persons i really encountered um was james baldwin and uh because if, if I knew about Baldwin at all, it was really just kind of like, I think I could recognize him, you know, from a picture, but really knew nothing of his writing. And it was an incredible documentary a couple of years ago on him called I Am Not Your Negro. Um, but so much of his writing, particularly the last couple of years, would be as if he was writing right now. So I think just like, you know, Merton is the patron saint of the spiritual, but not religious. And I think his work is as timely as ever. I'd say James Baldwin's the same kind of writer that somehow he wrote, wrote to the moment that he was in and speaks to us now, which I think both says a lot about just how deep the original sin of racism is in our country, but also just that Baldwin, like Merton, and I don't know that if Baldwin would think of himself as a contemplative, but there's obviously a deep core and deep center in James Baldwin from which he's speaking. Thank you so much for joining in. As I said at the top of the episode, tune in next week for the second half of my conversation with Bishop Cole about Thomas Merton. If you came to the podcast via Facebook, please like, comment, and share it around. If you are a subscriber through iTunes, we would really appreciate a five-star rating and review. I'm Father Jason reminding you that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine.